Hi listeners, Jason here. Well, it's that time of year again where the team breaks for Christmas holidays. We hope you have enjoyed listening along to some amazing guests sharing from their considerable subject matter expertise. While there will be a three-week hiatus from new episodes, we have you covered with six Christmas replay episodes. These are six of the most downloaded and popular episodes from 2022, including this one. If you haven't heard this episode yet, you're in for a treat. If you have already, it's probably worth a re-listen. Now, while I've got your attention, I'll be delivering a series of in-person workshops in London, Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne in January and February. These sessions will help you to incorporate psychological health and safety into a holistic approach to workplace mental health that prevents harm, promotes flourishing and responds to ill health. That's it for announcements. Now on to the special Christmas replay episode. From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Van Shee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guest and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joel Mitchell. How are you Joel? Well, I'm excited because December is upon us mm-hmm. um, and it might come as a shock to our listeners to hear that I'm a Christmas person. It was a shock to all of us in the office, I've got to it say. It always is. People's first Christmas that they, that they spend with me, they are typically shocked. Yeah, and, and I guess I shouldn't be because as we've discussed, you're the one that probably looks most like an elf in our whole office. Yeah, in most places. <laughs> you definitely have the size and yeah, I, I reckon you've got some facial features as well that are kind of elfish. Probably. I don't have the pointy ears though, so. No. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't you, did you, didn't you once dress up as an elf? No, no. I was asked to dress up as elf on the shelf. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your perspective, uh, no elf costume could be procured at the time. So that did not eventuate. Yeah, probably none in your size, I guess. So. Just, I think just none, period. <laughs> Christmas, finding an adult elf costume at Christmas time is. Uh, adult, I think, is maybe an overestimation. Small childs. Um... <laughs> just because but... just you're like. A string bean. But we've always had, uh, I, I think you're actually the first female hire we've had and we've had all just, you know, developers and stuff and kind of Christmas goes by and no one really cares. Um, so this is the first year we've actually had someone push for a budget to get Christmas kind of deck. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I'm glad you got a budget and I'm looking forward to the stuff when they arrive. I am too. Yeah, it'd be cool. And I'm going to make everybody help decorate too. Yeah, well, you did a great job. I got to say, um, when I turned forty, it was really nice coming in and seeing all the balloons. And Ryan almost passed out he, on the ground from, from blowing up all the <laughs> he balloons. Was, he, he was glaring at me and Dan initially, saying, "I'm not going to participate." And then he got up and did more than any of us. So <laughs> I had to actually confiscate the bag of balloons from him because he was just not stopping. Yeah, so I got to say, it has been nice having a woman's touch around the office. And- Gosh, thanks. That's isn't that swell? It is well. That's look. You know, I, I don't really dish out the compliments hard and fast. So just take. Them is that what that was? It was yeah, a bit was of a, a backhanded compliment. I it think. was as close as you're going to get. Yeah. 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 Hey. Um. But yes, look, I am looking forward to Christmas, and uh, it'll be better being in the Christmas spirit with some of your decorations and stuff around the office. Which will be nice. 
Cool. Uh, thanks. Well, let's uh, introduce <laughs> our guest. In, hey? <laughs> uh, we've got a very special guest today. Uh, he has a PhD in safety science, is an, an, an adjunct fellow of the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Queensland. He's previously held senior health and safety positions in several large organisations. He currently applies cutting-edge safety science as founder and managing director of both ForgeWorks and Safety Futures. However, our listeners probably best know him as a co-host of the very popular Safety of Work podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. David Proven. Ah, good afternoon. Jackson yes, it Darrell. is afternoon. Even in Perth, it is it afternoon. Is. Yes, it is. yes. It's that now after 18 months of... Uh, of COVID and doing so much international work, got a fairly good time zone calculator in my head now, which is good. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's nice to hear someone from Melbourne say they're thinking about Perth because mm-hmm. most people just forget that we exist. They so, do, yeah. Yeah, that's no, nice. Yeah, and all that office talk, that was all um, quite foreign to me as someone <laughs> who has spent more than 270 days locked down uh, in the last 18 months. So, it's even strange to be looking at two people sitting in the same room in an office setting. <laughs> without a mask on without a, all the rest. <laughs> yeah, without a mask or something. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've certainly been fortunate um, to, uh, yeah, in, in some ways anyway. Yeah, I'm glad we escaped that social experiment. Mm, mm. Absolutely. Um, so, David, can you tell us what podcasts you like to listen to? Yeah, well, look, present company excluded, your podcast, um, my podcast that I do with Drew Ray, um, I actually catch up on a lot of my sports via via podcasts, um, and also like some uh, big fan of um, cautionary tales, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, and some of those storytelling podcasts. Um, yeah, and that's probably that's probably the scale of it. There's there's so much content these days. I think by the time I've got three or four shows, uh, that's um, that's about all I get time for. Yeah, got some um, some crossover there with. Lots of lots of our guests and what we like to listen to as well. Um, now, obviously, um, as Jason mentioned, you are the co-host of the Safety of Work podcast. Um, I'm sure that many of our listeners are already familiar with that, but for those who haven't heard about it, could you tell them what it's all about? Yeah, so uh, I went pretty late in my career back to university and did a PhD, did PhD research with uh, Professor Sidney Decker and Dr. Drew Ray at uh, at Griffith University and my, my PhD research was what is the role of a safety professional and really really got underneath for four or five years exploring the job as objectively as I could the job that I'd done for my whole career and one of the key findings there was that the profession didn't have an evidence-based narrative or justification for a lot of the things that we were um, advising and facilitating in our organizations around safety and this may be true of um, psychological safety and well-being as well and so um when i finished that sort of bailed drew up one day and said well if you're not part of the solution you're part of the problem and we can't just keep telling uh professionals to go and read journal articles and so um that was the idea the idea was well we'll do the work for the professionals we'll we'll get a we'll get a question that's relevant to um organizations and safety and we'll go find some research papers and we'll do our best to explain them um, one paper at a time and sort of a couple of years and 85 episodes later, it um, seems to be meeting a, meeting a need, which is, which is really cool. Yeah. It's um, I'm in two minds about you going to a fortnightly cadence with your podcast, Dave, on one hand, um, you know, I'm sad that I only get one episode a fortnight and not two, um, but 
I also like that we're catching up to you uh, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of podcast episodes. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a labour of love, isn't it? Um, yeah. And 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 there's a, and there's quite a bit behind the scenes that um, I'm sure people appreciate with preparation and with uh, with production, and um, and yeah, so we 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 just uh, got to the point where um, it was just becoming a little bit too rushed each week. So, yeah, um, we we're talking off air, obviously, before Dave, that uh, we obviously took the easy way out and just thought, let's have a guest on and ask them the questions rather than do any prep work ourselves. You guys do a, a heap of prep for that. And uh, I think the safety profession really appreciates it. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. So can you tell us about your professional career then? Yeah, so um, I did do an undergraduate psychology degree. Um, a long time ago, um, probably everything I learned at the time is um, since been disproven. <laughs> so, um, but but at the time, uh, health and safety, workplace health and safety was becoming a, a, a big topic um, in in communities, in in politics, inside organisations, and so there were, there were quite a lot of jobs going. So I got a graduate uh, workplace health and safety officer job. Uh, and then just went from there. And safety is the only job I've ever done. I spent 17 or 18 years in a professional career, um, three separate organizations. And then uh, a bit over four years ago, decided that uh, working inside large organizations was, was not for me anymore. And, um, and sort of started working on my own ideas and working for myself. So I've been fortunate to work in, in oil and gas, in construction, in rail, um, get involved in activities all over the, in like um, high risk or high hazard activities and, and assets all around the world. And um, now keep getting the opportunity to do that with lots of different interesting um, clients. So I'm just, I think that probably people who haven't studied psychology probably don't have an appreciation of the amount of um, research methodology that you actually have to learn as part of the undergraduate degree do you think like did that sort of um influence your decision to to do the phd and actually look at um you know i guess look into that issue of um scientific literacy or access to research in the safety profession yeah i think psychology really suited my personality um just constantly trying to understand the way the world works. I think my parents used to say like when I was seven, eight, nine years old, um, I'd rather just sit down and pull like, you know, the T volume of World Book Encyclopedia off the self- shelf and just start randomly reading through like one letter of, um, you know, did you have, did you have those? Did you have the bookshelf of all the World Book mm. Encyclopedias? And I'll just pull a random letter off and just start reading page to page about, about different things. And so psychology really suited me with the research methods and, and thinking about, you know, thinking about questions that we didn't know the answer to and then trying to figure out, trying to work out how we might figure out the answer. And I think that's what I really enjoyed about safety early on in my career, that just it was so, so complex and so variable. You know, it was touching every part of an organisation. It was every person, every task, every day, in every situation. It was dynamic. It was changing. It was time in the office, time in the field. Um, And it, it just was, it just seemed amazingly interesting to me. So that's, um, and then I'd done a, uh, I went on, did a master's in 
in health science and then I did an MBA and then it was kind of this cycle of every couple of years go back and do something else at university. Yeah, um, we've all experienced that bug. Uh, I don't know. I don't not know. you? No, my, you went parents, straight through, didn't you? I think my parents may still have the old Encyclopedia Britannica on, on their shelf at home, and I'm pretty sure I could sell you a mint copy. Um, <laughs> I'd probably be up for that. I'd probably be up for that. But it is a bit addictive. I think it's either, it's either um, yeah, it's either university or tattoos. It's kind of like, it's, what's... Um, yeah. Um, and I got to say, um, unlike the two of you, maybe, um, although you haven't gone back for further study. Um, I, I have I, so. Oh, yeah, you did that. Yeah. Um, safety management system course or something. Yeah, it was a graduate graduate certificate, I think. And I had to do some like government diploma stuff as well. Yeah. When I finally finished my master's dissertation in 2007, after delaying it for two years, I should have finished it in 2005. Um, that was it. <laughs> I uh, sometimes have nightmares about going back and studying. Uh, now, I'm very happy to learn on the job these days, David, as compared to uh, learning in a classroom environment. But um, obviously now you've transitioned, as you said, you had enough of working within large organisations and now you're consulting um, and you do that under the banner of ForgeWorks. So can you tell us a little bit about um, ForgeWorks and you know, why you created it, what it's all about? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so ForgeWorks is a safety and operational risk consulting business um, and sort of at the moment we're trying to make that transition from professional services organization to technology company um, and got some really exciting things that are sort of in the market now and also sort of like on the development roadmap uh, for that so look I think um, so I got to the point in my career like I said earlier after 17 or 18 years inside companies that I sort of felt like and feeling about mid-career, so early 40s, um, but at the time, late 30s, going, well, maybe halfway through my career, if I keep working in these same sorts of roles inside these same sorts of organizations, um, how much am I going to learn from that? Like, and, and I knew that I would learn, but I didn't think I'd, I'd, I'd learn as much as if I tried to reinvent myself or really try to do something different. So, And at the same time, I'd, I'd never really felt like there was a consulting business that I could go to and, you know, there's lots of individual safety consultants who I really respected and, and, and used a lot. But as far as consulting companies go, like, and not to, you know, criticize any of those, you know, big four consulting companies or any of the other big safety consultancies, I really felt like there was, a, there was a, an organization in the market that, um, that I would just want to have a long-term partnership with. Um, so I thought sort of, felt that there was an opportunity to try to, to, to grow a brand into that market. And that was, um, that was a Forgeworks brand. And we invested a lot in, in sort of setting up the brand and, and mobilizing it. And we had some really good international con contracts and projects and lots happening and, and really strong growth and then kind of COVID. So 18, nearly, well, going to be two years ago shortly. Um, and so that sort of led us to kind of reinventing ourselves launching another organization as well and um and sort of making that decision that you know a, a tech uh you sort of need to be in a digital business now there's it's um you know it's not it's not it's not scalable if if and the digital the digital um technology is so available and it's so good now it's so high fidelity that you you don't I don't think the scale happens with people um, in the mm. same impactful way. 
Yeah, I mean, even learning platforms, right? I mean, there's little difference between consuming something over Teams live, as most people have had to during the pandemic. She couldn't do training live um, versus, you know, something that's pre-recorded and then it's scalable because it's not people's time that we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, but similar to, to you, obviously, we made the decision to go from a consulting business to a technology business back in 2018 and haven't looked back. It's, uh, it's great. Uh, but tell us, you said you do have already something in market. I'm, I'm sure I've, I've come across it. But for our listeners, you know, what, what is the first thing that you've released? Yeah, so we worked really hard. Um, we, we were doing a lot of organizational strategy building and, and as part of strat, so health and safety strategy projects. And, and as part of that, you'd always do a diagnostic of the organization. Where's the organization at? Where does the organization want to be? Uh, what are the ways to, to help it get there or help the people inside it um, lead that? And so that ended up us building our own framework for, and uh, in September or so, 2020, a bit over maybe 15 months ago, we released um, this blueprint for improving the safety of work, about a, a 40, 40 page or so blueprint and said, here it is, here's what we think, uh, here's what's in, the, in all the contemporary safety theory and, and research around uh, how to do this well. Uh, and then we started doing lots of assessments um, what I say manually at first, lots of interviews, lots of focus groups, lots of uh, site visits. And again, um, COVID, uh, we, we initially didn't want to develop a survey tool, a questionnaire tool, because I think going back to Joelle's point about psychology, knowing the use and misuse of things like survey instruments, we, I, I didn't want to sort of buy into a lot of the rubbish um, instruments that are out there. So we sort of took us 12 months, um, 12 months working with Griffith. We had five or six different false starts and just until we got to the point where we felt that we had a, had a question set that, um, that gave us some insights into, into people. So we've got, you know, the web app and the, and, and the digital version of that survey and the analytics around that and, and the reporting around that. And, you know, very soon we'll have sort of self-service functionality around that and, um, and pulsing capability and a whole lot of kind of things that organizations can use to um, get feedback from their people about their approach to safety management. So yeah, that's, that's in the hands of um, real people, real paying customers now, um, the first dozen or so there. And, you know, we've got some pretty ambitious goals for 2022 to um, get people all around the world onto that platform, um, 12 languages and yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. Like you say, the scale that you can reach when you go down the technology route rather than the people power route. Um, little loss in fidelity, but these days, like you say, it's it's actually pretty pretty good what you can deliver with technology versus the face to face. Yeah, yeah, and and also we're we're fine. It's really interesting as well because we're finding, um, um, you know, we thought things like interviews were high fidelity, but as you know, you know, there's so much research of bias in things as well. So, you know, once you do one interview and then you form a view and then you go into the next interview, you're kind of reinforcing your opinions from the first interview in the second interview. And as we started to do some sort of, um, sort of independent work of getting different people in different focus groups and trying to do a survey with one group and then doing focus groups and interviews with the other group, we actually realized that what we thought with our interviewing processes and our focus group process, what we thought were quite high fidelity processes were um, probably also quite biased, um, maybe even more so than the right survey instrument. So, you know, I think that's why so much research, I think is mixed methods. Yeah. 
which is what we like to do now. We like to do a survey and then a couple of focus groups and a few interviews as well. Yeah, and, and that's common methodology when conducting a psychosocial risk assessment, for example, as well. Yeah. Hey, um, the other venture that you're uh, you founded um, is uh, the Safety Futures. Um, can you tell us a bit about you know what that's all about? Yeah, so Safety Futures was, well, sorry, Safety Futures wasn't, um, but have d- designing a professional development program for for health and safety professionals was something that I started thinking about before I started my PhD. So 2012, 2013, um, at the time I had 289 health and safety people working for me inside an oil and gas organization. And everyone would come to me and I'd I'd had a master's in safety. I had an MBA and all this. Everyone would come to me and say, what can I do to advance my career? What's good professional about? Should I go to uni? And I'd be like, well, unis, they don't really make you better professionals. No disrespect to that's not what universities are there to do. and it's like, well, yeah, short course on like communication skills or conflict resolution or something. And I just really felt that there was nothing in the market that there was nothing available to me to, to grow the capability of my, of my safety team. Uh, so that was when I thought that was sort of part of the inspiration for going and doing my PhD on the topic of the role. And then um, it was on the back burner, you know, you, you start a business, you get busy, you start doing projects and then you never get a break. But when we got first lockdown in the start of 2020, we um, we sort of had a number of projects cancelled, and I kind of went now or never. Let's 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 do this, and so started designing this advanced safety professional practice program, and and started really broadly. And won't bore you with the details, but it ended up being sort of 25 modules, and we run it as a boot camp over 15 weeks, and um, and so we launched our first program in February this year. We've now run five programs, um, three in-house programs for some very large international organizations and two public programs. Uh, we, both the public programs, we, we sold out with 100 spots on, on each and we'd add another maybe um, 100 and, 150 people through in-house programs. So it's been amazing to have 350 or so health and safety professionals from about 30 countries through that program. Um, and then I was also kept getting asked, what can we do to train our, our leaders, our like operations managers, supervisors? And I'd worked more than a decade ago with um, a colleague who's a um, partner in, in the Safety Futures organization uh, in doing frontline leadership training. Um, and Ralph Shreve, he's gone on to train more than 10,000 supervisors. So we launched in June our frontline leadership version, which is a, a 10 module, 12 week version. And we've got already more than 500 enrollments in that program for 2022. Amazing. Uh, in, yeah. Across six different programs with 100 spots in each. So that's sort of 60% um, or 70% already filled. Um, and it's, it's, an, it's just an amazing experience to um, what we call a, a digitally enabled interactive workplace-based learning experience, which sounds like a mouthful, but um, we deliver the, the content through um, a cool um, platform. We have weekly uh, webinars and and like lectures, tutorials, weekly webinars and and uh, learning groups and um, and people do practical activities in their workplace and and reflect on it. So it's it's cool and they get a um, they get the book. <laughs> the, um, That's which, a real hard copy book. Look at that. Yeah, which is which is only available to participants on the program at the moment. 
And um, is it signed by you, Dave? It can be. It can be <laughs> um, but no, that was and that was also the first. That was that was actually kind of a cool. So that's my COVID. That's what gave birth to. Finally, wrote a book during COVID. Yeah, that's a thick one too. That is. Yeah. Congratulations. Much no, thicker than Clive's, I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> His baby during COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I think similar to you, Dave, we like experimenting with different mediums and how do you, you know, um, do things at scale and, you know, uh, educate a, a broad audience around the world. Uh, and you also had a go at doing a um, online conference or of some sort through ForgeWorks, didn't you? Yeah, we um, we did a face-to-face workshop in February 2020, a safety to in practice workshop. We brought out um, Professor Eric Holnagel from Denmark and some many of the listeners probably probably know Eric. And, you know, we had this idea of once a year, we'd do this event um, and then COVID, a bit of a theme, isn't it? Um, um, I was just thinking the other day that, you know, you see, I see people walking around holding, you know, with masks and holding masks and that doesn't even seem strange anymore. But if I went back two years and saw people Mm. walking around with masks on, I'd be like, you know, where am I? You know, what is this? But anyway, um, so yeah, so um, I forgot the question. Sorry, Jason. Yeah, the, the live uh, conference that you're in. Oh, uh, yeah. So so then this year we thought, well, we'll do something anyway. Um, and at the start of this year, it looked like we might be able to do a hybrid event. The borders were opening and shutting every second week. Um, but we went to this live. We, we decided to try and do uh, do it. Well, we decided to do a live stream um, global safety summit. So TV studio style, eight hours of live streaming all around the world. And I think at one point we had about three and a half thousand people online viewing that. Um, we had Professor Sydney Decker, we had Dr. Todd Conklin and um, a range of practitioners and sharing stories from sort of around the world. Um, and then in uh, only a month or two ago, we did a live stream event into Brazil um, in live translation in Portuguese. So again, we had, we had Sydney and Todd and others doing what we're doing now with you know which is amazing someone super talented person who can listen in one ear to the english and speak at the same time a few seconds later in the portuguese and so we did a live stream um live translation event uh over two days into into brazil yeah Um, that was with hector hugo hugo yeah 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 Yeah, joel's been on his podcast before i didn't get it I, i didn't get an invite Nah, fair enough. I'll, I'll so have my profile, Jason. Jo- Joel's the favourite. Everyone yeah. knows it. So yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, so we've tried a couple of different things. Um, and, yeah, most things have gone okay, fortunately. Yeah, I mean, that's the entrepreneur in you, right? Like, you have something like COVID get in the way, and then you think about other ways. How do, how do we still get out the message and engage people and, and everything, which is fantastic. So um, you gave us some numbers of like the number of uh, safety professionals that you've had through your safety futures training so far, which is um, very impressive. Um, what would you say is their current level of knowledge about psych health and safety? Or is that something that you look at? Yeah, we do. We do talk um, a lot about it because it's such an important topic for organizations and, you know, and communities, um, governments and professions. Um and so it comes up a lot when we're talking about different aspects of the professional practice, whether it's risk management, whether it's management systems, whether it's uh, um, communication. And and so, and, and, and so it comes up a lot of the time, um, but we don't have any specific content in our course around it because I never felt that I was the one who was appropriate to be teaching people a- about this. And so, but we do, we do talk about it a lot. There's a lot of willingness to, to, to learn and try to understand what, 
organizations um, can legitimately be doing in this space that is going to be helpful. Um, so, so there is a strong appetite for this amongst the health and safety profession from what we've experienced this year. Yeah, you haven't found any uh, pushback on it and say, look, you know, this is the role of org psychs or HR. Um, the pushback that we get is mainly related to people feeling like it's not the role of organizations to intervene in this space. Um, so that's, you know, it's personal business. Organizations shouldn't be overreaching into people's personal lives. We shouldn't be doing anything about this. That's, they, they're the people, they, that seems to be the narrative of behind the pushback, not because it's someone else's problem um, within the organization. It's health and safety people who don't think it's an organizational um, not responsibility, but issue. Um, yeah. Do you think that's um, maybe due to confusion around say mental illness symptoms and psychosocial hazards? I, yes, yes. Um, because, because work does create psychosocial hazards. Absolutely does. Um, and organizations should not shy away from the fact that work does create genuine psychosocial hazards. Um, but people conflate psychosocial hazards with, with the broader mental illness space um, for, some, for some conditions which are maybe not so much caused by psychosocial hazards and more caused by um, genetics or, or other environmental factors which, um, which are diagnosed conditions and, and treatable conditions. Um, and I don't know whether they're... I think workplaces should be... Um, inclusive of people with all of those sorts of uh, illnesses, but yeah, I agree. The way that you frame that, absolutely, that's that that misunderstanding is probably what's causing. Yeah, it, it is something that we have um, discussed previously on the podcast, probably a number of times. Um, I think it's caused by the public health approach to mental health, mental illness, um, and then that being translated into a workplace environment um, and then that's confused with, well, actually the employer's obligation is to create a healthy and safe work environment that's free or where, where hazards are identified and, and risks are reduced to as low as reasonably practicable. Um, and that is physical and psychosocial. Um, but the role of the organisation is not to help people manage a mental illness. It is to, you know, they should be accommodating people with a mental illness like they would anyone with a physical injury, um, but it's not their role to treat someone with a mental illness. Um, and so, yeah, no, I think... It is something to do with the public health approach potentially um, confusing what the employer's obligations are and the role of the health and safety professional in that too. And I think also just the real a real focus on the individual, even you know at a um, at a societal level, that you know mental health is something that sits within the individual, and there's not really um, to get on one of my bandwagons. There's not really good recognition of social determinants of health um, as they relate to mental health sort of in, in I guess, general um, community understanding of mental illness, if we want to use that language. So it's sort of makes sense that that carries over into the workplace as well. Yeah. And I think even just the term psychosocial, like a lot of health and safety professionals don't understand. So we're not talking about um, mental illnesses caused by genetic predisposition or individual kind of circumstances or lifestyle choices we're talking about you know environmental conditions that are causing these things uh, and therefore you know we can manage those hazards like we would with any other physical hazards and that is getting down to the root cause and dealing with them systemically 
Yeah, totally agree. And I think having that language, the way that you've both just described it there is, is really what the profession needs, like social determinants, environmental factors, lifestyle choices, clinical conditions, all of these different ways of understanding, you know, the breadth of what is a, a broad and complex topic, just like all of the language we have around physical workplace hazards, um, developing that same um, model and language for these hazards like what like what you guys do really well um at flourish is 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 helpful because then organizations and the safety professionals can can find their part of that puzzle or their part of that that they really need to be addressing and, and working on legitimately um and I, I agree with your other point about the public health approach like we see organizations when they want to approach this um, in their organization, they do things like bring these amazing charities in like Beyond Blue and all of these sorts of things, which, which are there to kind of support illness in, in community, in society. Um, and that's not really what organizations should be, should be doing. Um, it's like, yeah, exactly like what you said. It's, you know, what are the, what are the work conditions? What are the social conditions? What's that doing to what, what hazards, what psychosocial hazards is that creating? And then what is the organization doing about that? Yeah. I mean, if we put it into a space that you're very familiar with, Dave, you don't expect a company to offer sports massages to employees like on a weekly basis, unless you're an athlete, right? <laughs> Perhaps that's maybe part of the role. Um, yeah. But someone working in a manual role, you don't have the masseuse, you know, going jump on and, you know, I'll give you a rub down. And I think that's the thing, like I, I didn't have a lot of, I was quite naive and still am in a lot of ways, quite ignorant of, of this whole domain. It's not something that I claim to have expertise in. Um, but that was always what was why I probably didn't venture too far in here. If I went back five years when I was last inside an organization, because, you know, people were seeing this as something like, um, yeah, lunchtime yoga classes, fruit bowls, gym, subsidized gym memberships, and um, and then once a year, you know, some resilience training or something, um, coping train, co you know, coping with stress training or something like that. And and I never really felt like, you know, that was like putting posters up for safety or something like that. I didn't feel that that was actually doing anything of of benefit for. Yeah, surely it was doing some things of benefit, but I feel like that was what organizations should be doing. Yeah, yeah. We, um, as we describe it, again, putting in the language your listeners would be familiar with, we talk about the hierarchy of controls and it's really down to that bottom level. You know, if we talk about resilience training, you're really talking about either an administrative uh, control or a PPE control when it comes to, to psychosocial risk. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it is an important control for some roles where they are, um, necessarily exposed to, um, you know, traumatic events or, you know, at risk of vicarious trauma or that sort of thing, then having the psychological PPE is a really necessary um, function for their role, but not for people who are just dealing with poorly structured um, bureaucracy and, um, you know, lack of role clarity and, and those sorts of things. Yeah. And we definitely believe there's a bit of both, right? Yeah. We do need to equip the individual to be able to, um, protect themselves against uh, less than ideal circumstances, uh, but that then doesn't absolve the employer of their obligations to create a healthy environment where people don't get ill. Uh, in fact, um, Professor Tony LaMontagna went as far to say it's unethical for a company to offer resilience training unless they first look at the psychosocial hazards and make sure that they've reduced that risk to a lap. Yeah, I think it's kind of like, I, I, I wouldn't, I'd sort of agree with that um, unethical stuff. I, it's kind of like giving someone training in how to apply a 
tourniquet to their arm that gets cut off because they don't want to put a guard around the machine. Mm. Like, you know, it's, it's, um, it's just the wrong, the wrong, the wrong, the wrong end of the incident. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we, we find that when we're able to make those analogies to physical safety examples that really people sort of get the point that we're making um, a lot easier than. Yeah. You see a lot of light bulb moments. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, if, yeah, if somebody goes to a lot of um, festivals in their time off, does that mean that we don't give them ear defenders when they're exposed to noise at work? No, we don't. We take control of the hazards that they're exposed to at work. Yeah. And we see it. And so, um, and workplaces should do, I think, a lot more heavy lifting in this space. Like I think, um, yeah, I get that it's hard, but um, like so many times every week I see people who are with unrealistic pressures on their work like it's getting sent something at 6 p.m at night and expecting someone expecting a response back by 7 30 p.m at night and people you know probably waking up the next morning dreading opening up their inbox for what's in it or dreading having a meeting with their manager because of how their manager kind of provides feedback to them or something and i think that there's these things about it workload and, and and pressure and communication and support there's so much inside an organization that um creates so many psychosocial hazards that um organizations just typically ignore and we see it whenever a whistleblower comes out that the organizations and this is probably an unfair generalization but it appears as though lots of organizations just throw this stuff in the too hard basket um and don't try to do anything proactive about it yeah, and, and I think that's what's really forced the hands of regulators um, and legislators to uh, uh, adjust, obviously, our legislation here in Australia and draft regulations around psychosocial uh, risk management. And, um, you know, Safe Work New South Wales has been the first state to bring out an industry agnostic code of practice uh, in this space as well. Um, and so it's going to be pretty hard for employers to hide it's not going to be you know it, 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 it being too hard is not going to be a justification anymore there's going to be plenty of really good uh evidence out there and um we're probably not helping employees either by giving them a tool <laughs> which <laughs> makes it really easy to to do this stuff as well yeah well, i think um and and yet, otherwise yeah i think regulators will 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 keep stepping in i'm not sure uh, you got you will know um is it france where it's illegal to send your employees an email after hours or something um Oh, that new... The... Oh, it's been around for a little while, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. in France it's around for a little while. I think maybe it's just come into a few other countries as well. Oh, it might be Portugal's just introduced it, maybe. Yeah. 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 And look, they, they do take it pretty serious over in France. There was a couple of directors um, in the yeah. last year or two that were um, put in jail for a culture of bullying and harassment. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. the directors held responsible for that, where, uh, yeah, they had a number of suicides uh, there. So yeah, now they take it pretty seriously. What's going to be really interesting though, is um, I was speaking to Michael Toomer about this actually at the AIHS conference they just had um, around workplace mental health and uh, asking him about, you know, is it going to take some cases that aren't related to say bullying and harassment and sexual harassment, but maybe more around work overload um, to get companies to start taking this seriously? bullying harassment sexual harassment i think everyone would morally go yeah that's wrong and we don't want that in our workplace but things like workload it seems like companies are very fine in many instances to just keep piling on people and looking at the safe work australia our workers compensation statistics i think it's something like 20 percent of all psychological injuries come down to work overload it's not bullying and harassment it's just having too much to do yeah yeah i think there's more for less um 
um, continuous approach in organisations is is you know I don't think you come across anyone who doesn't say that they're busy. And I think if you ask people, are you more busy now than you were a year ago? Even COVID aside, I think when you look at the productivity stats, about people have basically replaced all of their commuting time with work time, replaced their before breakfast, after dinner time where maybe they used to unwind on the couch watching TV are back in their study doing doing work or put the kids to bed and doing more work and everyone's got permanent studies set up in their house and I think um yeah I think it's a I think it's a it's it cases would help I think it'll be like anything those first couple of cases are just going to be painful for the people involved um, because the companies are going to throw everything at the defense of that which it always happens it happens in safety and it's kind of um, unethical as well. Like if, um, and you know, but hey, look, we see it everywhere. We see it in our own Australian federal government around um, claims of sort of sexual harassment and abuse and things like that. Like the liability, the liability management that organisations kind of go to, it's just so hard for the individual. So I think cases will help, but I feel sorry for the first couple of people involved in those cases who are the first ones to put their hand up and say this is unreasonable. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm aware that the regulator in the UK um, and the Union for Higher Education Professionals um, is looking at doing something in that space around workload specifically, not around bullying. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that in the uh, coming months. Yeah, when you speak to, as I do with, you know, my adjunct role with the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University, um, obviously with the loss of international students in lots of parts of the world with border closures, uh, you know, there's been lots of jobs lost in, in universities. Which, and so lots of teaching workloads and research workloads and admin workloads. Um, so have all gone, you know, onto sort of core permanent staff members and that now. So I think you'd find anyone in that sort of higher education setting anywhere in the world that used to rely on international students, uh, they might be doing 50% more than they were expecting mm. to. Yeah, not calling out any industry specifically, but higher education was not in a great place before the pandemic. And uh, now it's obviously, a, they're asking to, to do more with less uh, as a lot, lot are. Um, uh, I like, or I don't like what you're saying, but I definitely resonate with what you're saying around the working from home. And we know that you and Melbourne had the worst of it um, with the longest lockdown in the world. Uh, but whether it's working from home and companies going, oh, people have great flexibility now, or is it living at work, you know, not being able to disconnect from, you know, what you're actually doing. Yeah. And I think that there's, um, you know, which, which way does it bleed, you know, and I think, yeah, employers, and again, you know, speaking in generalizations here, em employers are happy to have work bleed into home life, but they're not happy to have home life bleed into work. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, it's a good point. I think, yeah, it's it's a really it's it's and and I'm probably not really best placed to talk about this sort of working for myself and or or leading a business. Um, so, you know, I think if it's some, you know, I've got a, I feel like I've got a really a huge blur between life and work because lots of the things I do at work are, you know, I'm so passionate about them that I would do them on a Sunday because I find them interesting or 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 um or enjoyable. So I think I, what I think it is with that thing is when it isn't actually something that the person wants to do. 
Like I've got to prioritize this thing that I don't want to do over something that I want to be doing in my life. Then I think outside of the normal hours of work. So is, is where it becomes, I think a real problem for people. Um, and that's probably most, I don't want to say most people is too much of a generalization, but that would be how I do it. Is the person, does the person want their life to be different than they feel the organization is making it for them? Mm. Um, I mean, it's also different being a business owner as well, because you, you know, you're going to still reap the benefits of whatever work you do whenever you do it, where if you're, um, you know, a salaried employee yeah. doing those extra hours and not being compensated for them. And, you know, if you don't have a, um, yeah, any, I guess, any other ways for the business to um, compensate you for those additional hours. Um, yeah, I'm only, I'm only laughing a little bit because this idea of um, reaping the benefits and salary <laughs> and business owner, there are a few words using that sentence that didn't quite mesh together for me. And I was just going, ah, oh, the day, being a salaried employee. Um, <laughs> yes. Joel has no idea, Dave. The grass, is, yeah. the grass is always green. <laughs> but no, no, you're, you're exactly right. I have right. no aspirations to, to business ownership. <laughs> no. My dad was a small business owner my whole life and many, many of my other family members as well. I, I know what it looks like and I have no desire for that <laughs> no, whatsoever. I'm quite I happy do, being on I, a salary. I do um, say to people, not, you know, you know, feel feel sorry for me kind of way um but you know it is something that in the last few years never never ever worked harder for less money in my career um <laughs> but um but passionate about what i what yeah. what i do every day so you know you got to make those trade-off decisions so. yeah yeah so one of the things that you're obviously passionate about dave is to build up the profession's capabilities right um so we're talking about psych health and safety here specifically um, thinking about health and safety generalists, what sort of competencies do you think that they are going to need in this new world where things like ISO 45003 is out, where we've got new regulations dealing with uh, psychosocial hazards is out to help them to be able to um, partner with their organisations to, to deal with this successfully? Yeah, look, I think, um, I think the health and safety profession is a, is, is I think a logical place for this responsibility to sit inside organizations when we think, um, I mean, you can, you can talk about being in human resources, but I don't know whether human resources have the sort of the frameworks um, and the, the, I don't want to say access, but the understanding of work that the health and safety organization would have. Uh, so I think, I think it's a logical place to sit. I think the, the literacy in this area needs a massive increase, like, like for me included, me absolutely included, um, to actually know um, what this cause and effect model kind of is inside organization. Like what are, you know, what are the, the psychosocial hazards? So what are the drivers of certain types of psychosocial hazards? Uh, you know, what are the different um, impacts on individuals? How do those impacts vary across maybe different individuals? Because um, I assume from a, you know, one of the differences here is um, compared with physical safety, in my understanding, and you can tell me that I'm wrong, um, please do. But my layman's interpretation, if I, if two people were to fall out of a, off a ledge five metres in the air, their physical injury impacts would probably be quite similar. If two people were to be exposed to the same psychosocial hazards, I have this 
um, understanding that the impacts on different people can be quite different. Um, which is why I think organizations hide behind the fact of, well, we'll just help people to cope more uh, because some people seem to be able, because Fred or Mary who sits over there does more work than you and doesn't complain. So I guess that's when we think about the literacy and the, the, the capability of WHS professionals is sort of to understand those determinants, those hazards, those, those impacts, those individual factors and, and kind of understand that that risk space that would be how i'd see the starting point yeah that's a really interesting one because joel's been dealing with that recently um we had a client who wanted to do a top-down risk assessment um you know of psychosocial hazards and uh you know we had to say well no actually employee perception of psychosocial hazards count actually more so than your desktop research or your top-down view of what you perceive to be reasonable because it is, yeah, the, the role of individual differences, as you say, David, is so significant. Um, I think uh, probably you can look at it as rather, rather than, um, you know, what damage will occur if we um, expose, yeah, if we, if we push someone off a height, yes, we know that, you know, that the likely damage that will occur. But if we look at it from the perspective of, you know, how much weight can somebody lift? And then you've got a broad range of, um, of capability there and you don't look at, you know, who's the muscliest dude in the group and then assume that everybody's going to have the same capability um, to lift. Um, you actually look at, well, what's, you know, what's the average or what's the the minimum requirement for this role. And that's where we actually set the benchmark there, not, not at, um, you know, the, the best performer. Yeah. I like that analogy. Um, that's a much better one. That, that's a much, yeah. So I think that's a good, um, contrast to the heights one and also a good um, sort of um, example for for the individual differences and yeah I just I just think that there's a there's a whole um, there's a whole awakening that needs to happen and and, and I think maybe my, when I talk to about organizations sometimes I sort of talk chicken and egg like someone's got to break the cycle someone's got to awaken first uh, and so I think this is one of these things that um, that if the workplace health and safety profession can get itself organized and aware around these topics can provide a whole lot of support to their, to their workforce. And I agree with you that perception is probably the most important thing. When we do our, our survey that I mentioned earlier around um, the capacity, which we, you know, the, the capacity of the organization to manage the safety of work, we get organizations who say to us, but um, it's only the perception, it's not reality. And it's like, well, if you believe that, individuals making decisions impact safety then the logics that they're telling themselves and the perceptions that they have is actually what informs the decisions that they make so we had one debate with a with a with a cfo because the workforce had fed back that they didn't feel like there was enough resources for safety and the executive management said well that's simply not true we have a dedicated safety budget anytime anyone's ever asked us for something to do with safety we've given it to them it's like, well, it doesn't matter what you think is true or not true. This is what people experience. In, this is what people um, experience in the organization. So I guess it's a little bit like that with psychosocial hazards. It's what's the individual experience of you know, the work conditions. Yeah. And that's something that we've had to work around as well. I mean, um, psychosocial risk assessments by a survey um, are 
pretty done <laughs> typically. Um, is workload high, low, or somewhere in between? Is autonomy high, low, in between? Um, is supervisor support high, low, in between? These sorts of things, right? But people have different preferences. Like I know some people who love to be busy all the time, and if they weren't, that would actually be more of a stressor than if they were flat out. Um, same thing like with job control. You know, some people want to check their brain at the door. They don't want to think when they come to work. Um, but automatically, we would generally assume high workload, low control, that that's a recipe for disaster in terms of work-related stress. Um, and so, yeah, and that's why we had to come up with a different way of, of doing psychosocial risk assessments, taking more into account the individual impact of hazard exposure rather than just this assumption that some of these hazards um, automatically lead to a negative work experience. Um, so I guess from a, from a motivation perspective, um, what do you feel would, would help people in a safety function to, to take a more proactive role in psych health and safety in their organisations? Um, I think... I, again, these um, generalizations, I always feel a bit nervous about just generalizing, but um, I think the confidence in the knowledge, like I think it's a, conf a confidence in in the the awareness around this and, and and the understanding. Like I think I think the motivation, I think the motivation is there. I think I think it's such an important topic in businesses now, from boardrooms to senior management in in um, mass media outlets i think every organization that that we work with is doing something has some kind of plan in relation to this um most of the time based on this conversation that's probably an ill-informed Ill plan but but this happens in safety too you know people want to fix people want to do something about even physical safety and it's just let's just throw activity at this that's and and i think i think education's got to come before activity and and I think that's where it is now. So I think the what um, what I like with what what you've done with your forty five thousand three training, um, free training, and all this sort of stuff is I think I think the education piece is is the first piece, and and hopefully the profession is pretty motivated to become educated, and it's a matter of just having the access to that education and knowing where where it is. Um, that's what I'd hope anyway. Yeah, would you consider putting a 26 module on your uh, safety futures course around psych health and safety? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, and but and um, yeah, maybe we should do that together because I, I, I mean, the thing that we you can't really maybe promote an evidence based approach and then and then go off and and and, and teach stuff that you're probably not the the person to teach. So even in the risk management, uh, the the um, physical aspect of the risk management in our program was was authored by. You know, another colleague on my team, Avitsa Ninik, who's a who's a risk engineer and professional process safety engineer, um, forgot you know forgotten more stuff about about risk management than I'll ever know, and so we've sort of had this deference to expertise model around around the framework. So, um, yeah, sure, right. All right. Well, Joe's, Joelle's awesome at writing content. <laughs> yeah. If you want a real organizational psychologist, we have one here on 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 salary. Um, <laughs> which is great. Um, but no, that sounds good. Okay, look, you heard it here first, listeners. Uh, 2022 Safety Futures course. So we'll have a module on psych health and safety. <laughs> there you go. Written by Joelle. <laughs> I love writing scripts. Yes, <laughs> lecture. Um, but I think it is something that's 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 really 
I mean, it's, it's, it's mainstream now and, and it'll be one of these things where I just hope that the health and safety profession isn't kind of left behind again. Um, like, um, yeah, given, given the access to information that is available if people just go looking. Yeah, um, and I think, we, like you said, this actually sits really well within health and safety. Um, HR have had their go at doing workplace mental health and they've done it to, you know, the skill set that they've got. You know, let's get lunch and learns in, keynotes, mental health first aid, run an EAP, have a tissue box handy, that sort of thing. Um, but health and safety now actually need to bring their skills around risk um, in, into the game um, and understand, hey, there's hazards here. And if, if our role as a profession is to make sure that people leave the workplace the same way they entered or in a better place even, then, uh, you know, we really need to understand and be managing those risks. Yeah. And I think also, in no disrespect, I mean, um, to, to the HR profession, but the lens with which they look at the organisation um, is not the same as the lens with which the workplace health and safety profession look at the organisation. So the health and safety profession looks at work first and goes, what's the work that people have to do and what's the hazards created by it? The health and safety function look at the people first um, and so then go, what do I need to do for, with, to the people? So hopefully the health and safety function goes, what do I need to do for, with, to the work? Mm. Uh, and if I change the work, I change the hazards that emerge when people interact with that work. Um, and yeah, I, so I think it's exactly. Yeah, it's it's yeah. not it's not a slight against the profession. They're doing the best with what they've got and their knowledge base and their skill set. Um, but this is why health and safety and HR need to work together because together then they actually have a, yeah. a, a broader view uh, complete picture. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree entirely. So, what would you say? Um, speaking to the the safety professionals in our uh, listenership, what are the benefits for an organisation when their OHS function does have psych health and safety capabilities? Oh, look, I think. Um, I mean, I think it's a huge benefit. Uh, I'm sure you've done podcasts and looked at. Um, um, Maybe I'll step back from from that answer. I think if 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 the role of the health and safety profession is to improve the safety of work, you know, for the people who 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 work for that organisation, then this has to be part of it, part of what it means to improve the safety of the work. And so, if it has to be part of it, then then the function needs to have the profession needs to have the capability to do it. And I mentioned once just before about deference to expertise. You know, if I if I was the head of health and safety inside an organisation now, I'd have a psychologist reporting directly to me, just like I'd have, uh, um, a, depending on the nature of the industry, a risk engineer or a chemical engineer, just like I'd have a uh, um, an environmental specialist or whatever else was within my remit. Um, you know, I think we saw during COVID the emergence of chief medical officers reporting to CEOs in some organisations. Obviously, that's you know, pandemic extreme outside the capability of the WHS profession, but inside health and safety organizations, I'd expect to see growing, growing employment of psychologists um, to do this well, to do it properly. Yeah. And I guess what you're, what you're talking about there is having, yeah, within, I guess, within your safety team, you've got your generalists and then you've got your, your specialists, um, your subject matter expertise. And that's where you'd have that, um, that psych input. Um, as that subject matter expertise, I guess, to work with the generalists to embed into the SMS and into the um, into the risk management yeah. processes that are that are there. Yeah, a good org- a good safety organisation, and this is one where I could 
talk forever on given it was a nature, this topic of my PhD. Um, it's sort of like the three-legged the three-legged stool, like you say, you've got your um, specialists who actually know the content um, of the individual content areas, um, you know, major hazard categories or whatever you want to call it. Then you've got your advisory business partners, the people who liaise with you know the management in the organization, understand the business context and draw in on that specialist advice. And then you've got your support services, the people who maintain the systems and the reporting and and you know the administration of, of safety. And I think what happens is organizations get the admin and the general stuff and then forget that those people don't know what they're talking about when it comes to a lot of the specific hazards in the workplace, whether it's chemical, whether it's um, any other sorts of damaging energies or, or psychosocial. So have a look at your, safe, your safety organization and your technical subject matter expert pool and make sure you've got a subject matter expert for every major hazard that you've got in your organization would be my advice. Mm. Yeah, that's terrific advice. And it's definitely something um, we've spoken about before, given that around about 10% of all workers' compensation in Australia is due to psychological injuries. Um, you'd have to think you'd probably want in a team of 10, at least one person who knew what they were talking about regarding psychosocial. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. Um, it's becoming it's such an important issue. And, and as, and as organisations will realize that they'll have less and less physical hazards um less and less manual work much more auto automation so the you'll see this curve you'll see this inflection point where that psychosocial hazards crosses 50 percent because we've engineered out most of the physical hazards most of the improvements in physical safety over the last 30 to 50 years no offense to all of uh, probably offend the whole, entire health and safety profession now, but most of those- You do that most of the time anyway, yeah, don't you? Well, okay, cool. As long as that's okay. Um, I'll just blame it on Drew Ray. Um, in the, the, but, you know, th there's a view that you could argue that actually the reduction in risk has come from the engineering profession, not from the health and safety profession um, to a large extent for physical safety risk. Uh, and the more we look into the safety work that is driven by the health and safety organisation, the more we realise that it's probably not doing a whole lot to- genuinely reduce physical risk and i think there'll be this inflection point as the engineering function and, and and automation and and digitalization as that progresses um no one on assembly lines now everything will be 3d printed or like so robotics uh so if you're looking really future like in a decade's time maybe 90 percent of your compensation claims are uh psych psychosocial uh related i think the i mean the other element to that is that you know for, for the most part psych hazards can't be eliminated you know whenever you've got a group of people working together you're always going to have psych hazards that that emerge at some point in time so um i guess it's just always there in potential um so it's a matter of knowing what to look for and when to look for it and when to respond yeah and the how to respond the majority of our psych hazards um at our office dave are usually before 10 a.m before joelle's had her first coffee for the day so, the, so, but no, they're, for, the, the, they're foreseeable risks the, the and majority, we mitigate. The majority so, of yeah. our psych hazards in our office are adjacent. Let's just be clear <laughs> about that. I was and say, also 90% of the joy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you say so. I was going to say, Jason, given, given um, my predictions of just how in demand psychologists are going to be in companies, you might want to sort of slow down on the elf joke <laughs> and uh, other comments. Uh, Joelle gives it as good as she, or gets it as good. Yeah, no, I don't know. It's past. It's too late now. We're uh, we're about even. 
Let's let's put uh, it that way. Good, good. <laughs> I, yeah, I'd say you've said more offensive things to me than vice versa. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I mm-hmm. value my life. That's why. Uh, yeah. <laughs> She's tiny, but yeah, <laughs> dangerous, Dave. Hey, um, <laughs> back to the topic at hand. Um, we're talking about mental health. Uh, you obviously have a really great view of what's happening in the health and safety profession, uh, locally and and internationally. Um, but if you had to think about the future of, of workplace mental health, which I know isn't your area of expertise, Dave. Um, you've given a bit of a glum picture looking at the percentage of psychosocial or psychological injury, I should say. But what, what are your hopes for the future of, of workplace mental health? I think there's a, there's a, maybe, maybe, maybe a couple of things. I think, um, I think organisations understanding the hazard, the psychosocial hazards that their work creates like genuinely at, at all levels of a business, I think is really important. Like understanding these things like um, these and, and again, not, not, not knowing and, and maybe I'll um, need more of an education from, from you guys, but whether it's, whether it's workload, whether it's, whether it's feedback, whether it's um, autonomy, whether it's, you know, inclusion, what, whatever those things are, um, organizations actually understanding that and having some robust management processes and, and monitoring and, and, and feedback processes around those that we would have for any other health and safety risks. So knowing what's going to cause the problem, knowing what we need to do to prevent it, monitoring it, reporting on it, discussing it in management meetings, um, assigning those accountabilities to people to, to make sure it's done. Um, so, so all of my hope is that all of that doesn't take too long for, for organizations to do. And then probably a broader point, which is um, also a, community point as well as an organizational point it's just making our our organizations more inclusive and more tolerant of individual differences just generally and particularly in the mental health space like i think we've been doing probably not not probably not fast enough and um not enough with things like gender diversity and other aspects of individual differences like i think we've been glacial in some of our advances on that and it feels even more glacial on our tolerance for workplace mental health. Like, I mean, if, if someone applied for a job in your, so think of our listeners, someone applied for your job in the team yesterday and goes, oh, so say applies for a job in your team at the moment and goes, oh, I've actually got this mental health, whatever it is, whether it's schizophrenia or, or something and say, and every now and then completely out of the blue, I have a problem and I just need to stay in bed for three or four days. Don't know when it's going to happen, but it's, it probably happens a couple of times a year. But that person's, if they disclose that, probably not going to get any job. Um, and I think that's horrible for, um, for organizations to, um, yeah, to not be inclusive of the range of different sort of mental health conditions that people live their lives with. So they'd be the two things I think that organizations get their robust risk and management systems in place and just hurry up and be more inclusive. Yeah, no, they're fantastic. Fantastic. And, and like you say, hopefully it's not glacial, these changes, hopefully they come in sooner rather than later. Well, and when we've got, you know, 50% of adults in Australia will be diagnosed with some form of mental illness in their lifetime. Um, yeah, I think that you, you don't have an option as an employer. Um, are you going to screen out 50% of your potential candidates? Then what does that do to your talent pool? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, we could go, yeah, we could get very sidetracked and talk about how people um, can 
both be living with a chronic um, psychological disorder and also be high performers in the workplace and, you know, that there are very reasonable adjustments that workplaces can make um, to take take advantage of, of the talent those people can bring, um, not to mention the, um, the, the commitment and the loyalty that they would bring to an organisation as well who is, um, who is willing to make those accommodations for them. So um, more, more pros than cons, I think, in actually um, advancing that inclusivity. Um, yeah, and, and I don't think it is a topic that we actually have focused on a whole episode of the Psych Health and Safety podcast. So maybe no. in 2022, something we can look at. Yeah. So any listeners out there who are working in this field, hit us up. We'd like to uh, have you on for a chat. Terrific. Um, so, David, do you have some parting words of advice to share with safety professionals who want to get more involved in psychological health and safety? Um, I, I think my parting words would be, you know, not to be... Um, not to be afraid of this area. Like I started my career in psychology. It's fascinating. I mean, we're all, we're all human and, and, and we're sort of, you know, incredibly interesting and complex people. And, um, and this space isn't, I don't think this space is a space to fear. It's not a, it's not a space to ignore. It's a space to get educated on um, so that you can understand the role that you can play as a professional and the role that your organization should be playing to kind of understand and manage these, these hazards. So um I guess whatever you're holding inside your head in terms of just not wanting to talk about it, the stigma around it, um, do what I'm going to do after, after this podcast, go educate yourself, uh, you know, about this area because it's really important to to do well, I think, now and, and it will become increasingly more important in the future. Yeah, and we're looking forward to seeing this as a topic on a soon-to-be-released Safety of Work podcast. Yeah, well, we're going to... Now I'm going to educate myself. I'm going to go and find some research papers, and um, and yeah, and we'll uh, we might do a, we might even do a little mini series on on it, on it or something if we can find a few good papers. Oh, fantastic! Now it sounds like a great idea. It does yeah, um, Dave? It's been great having you on, mate. Uh, really fantastic conversation. Uh, yeah, few people in the world know the health and safety profession, uh, the the work of safety as as well as you do. So um, really great to have you on and give that insight into. The world of psych health and safety and what's required for the safety profession to uh, get into this space excellent thank you so much it's been a lot of fun that's gone fast yeah <laughs> uh, time flies when you're having fun hopefully yeah, it yeah. feels like it's gone fast for people listening i'm sure it has mate it's uh, it's going to be an instant classic no doubt absolutely yeah so uh that brings us to the end of the episode listeners thank you for listening um remember we do record these over video um so you can check them out uh on the flourish dx youtube page and we will release some clips on the flourish dx linkedin page as well um actually uh joel and i are really active on linkedin and dave's uh, on linkedin a fair bit as well um so you could probably hit them up there. Where else could people find out more about your work? Because obviously you've got um, safety features, you've got um, ForgeWorks. Yeah, find me. LinkedIn's probably the easiest place to get to get um, to to get hold of me if you, if you want to reach out um, and sort of follow along what's going on. We've got some pretty exciting things for for next year. We're going to um, launch our own YouTube channel under a, under a new uh, sort of a new little brand that's sort of another brand. <laughs> well, encompassing everything that yeah. um, that I'm involved in across ForgeWorks, safety futures, and the safety of work, and and um, try to globalize and, and bring a lot of that um, to more people. So, yeah. Okay, look out that. for that next year, guys. And um, or this year, actually, this will come out. Yeah, this will be our be. first episode. I haven't told first you that yet, David. First episode of the new year. First episode Perfect. of the new year. Yeah. So are you, are you you're doing a Facebook then and doing like a meta 
thing, are you? <laughs> no, it's not nothing like nothing like <laughs> nothing quite like that. Um, no, but um, okay. Well, this will come out. I should. Well, hopefully, if borders are, are open, I will be in the US when this comes out. If um, if that all works. So, uh, touch wood yeah we're not getting out of our state anytime soon no um, no we'll be here and still in 12 months time and the borders will still no. be shut yeah you guys do realize there was this thing called covid that happened to most of the world <laughs> what <laughs> uh great to have have you on again dave so uh yeah that brings us to the end listeners uh we'll catch you next episode You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.